appear to be doing all of the right things, but if I were to scratch beneath the surface, we would find that things are perhaps not as they should be. Something has gone wrong. And Jesus continues, wake up, wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. And this verse, it holds a particular challenge to us at Tamworth Elim because just like the church in Sardis, we have a good reputation. People say nice things about us. We are community leaders. Many of the works that we're involved in are celebrated throughout the town. By the measurements of the world, we are a successful church and charity. But as Christians, we're not interested in the measurements of the world. What we're interested in is how God sees us. Are we meeting the requirements of our God? Are we a living church, truly a living church, or are we a dead church that's got really good at the things that we do, but forgotten what it is that God requires of us? Now, I want to be clear this morning, this isn't um, a series that we're, we're writing designed to make us feel bad about ourselves or bad about our church because actually I think we have many, many wonderful things to celebrate as Tamworth Elim. But what we don't want to do is allow ourselves to inadvertently wander onto a path that is ultimately going to lead us away from God's purposes in our lives. So as we start 2018 together, what we wanted to do was stop was to just pause and reflect and perhaps ask ourselves some of those more difficult questions about how we're really doing where it counts. And if you're not a Christian this morning, then that's fantastic. We're so pleased that you're here with us. Well done for making it into church. That's a difficult step. But hopefully the message this morning will give you a sense of what it is that Jesus requires from those who decide to follow him. And if you are a Christian this morning, hopefully this morning will be a reminder um, and an encouragement to you of what it is that Jesus requires of you. So, we began this series by um, spending some time looking at the way in which the church was originally formed, the way the church began as recorded in Acts chapter 2. Acts is really the history of the early church, it's how all of this kind of got going. So it's a great book to read, and we've been focusing particularly on the last few verses of chapter 2, the bit that begins like this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. And what we've said is that these are some of the ways in which the church started to become a living entity. Some of the ways in which the church started to come alive. And two weeks ago, I spoke about how worship was central to everything that they did. Um, and last week, Steve looked at us uh, with regards to the significance of their fellowship, how important it was for them to um, grow together in community. And this morning, what I want to do is just focus on the first bit of this verse that reads, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I want us to ask together, what exactly did that look like for the early church? What were they devoting themselves to? What are some of the lessons that perhaps we, as a community of believers here, can learn from them? So it begins, they devoted themselves. But who are we talking about here specifically? 
Well, if we read the rest of the chapter before this point, and in particular the verse just before, we find that they are a group of 3,000 Jewish people. 3,000 Jewish people from all over the region who were in Jerusalem and heard the Apostle Peter speaking about Jesus. And they, in response to that message, had decided that they wanted to follow Jesus as well. They wanted to follow his teachings. So this is 3,000 brand new Christians eager to learn more. Now, at this point in history, um, the believers only totaled around 120. And that included the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. Um, They were still 12. They replaced Judas with a guy called uh, Matthias. But there was only 120 in total. So there's not many more here this morning. I wonder how we, as Tamworth Elian, would respond if 3,000 people were to walk through those doors this morning and say, guys, we've heard about Jesus, we've heard about his teachings, we want to know more, we want to be devoted to what he has to say to us, what would we do? Where would we um, even put them? I mean, there's not enough chairs, right? They'd have to sit on your laps or something. I'm being a bit flippant, of course. But this was the reality for the disciples. This is what they were facing in this moment. What do we do with 3,000 people that want to know more about Jesus? Well, they didn't panic, as I feel that we might a little bit. They didn't panic. What they did was they reverted to their training. They responded in the way that Jesus had taught them to respond. And this is where I want to um, begin this morning with our teaching. So if you have your Bibles with you, um, would you turn to Matthew chapter 28? I'm going to put the words on screen Um, If you don't have your Bible, but if you do have a Bible, I'd encourage you to bring it along on a Sunday morning. Um, It's good, as we have these teaching times, to to be able to look at it um, and and make notes and and, and respond to it in your devotions through the week. Um, If you don't have a Bible, have a chat with us and we'll we'll give you one. Um, I'm going to read to you from verse 16, and I'm just going to read to you what it says, and then we'll have a little think about the context and what's going on here. So Matthew 28, verse 16 says this. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I'm sure that is a familiar verse for many of us here this morning. It's what's known as the Great Commission. Jesus' final instructions to those he had been pouring his life into over the past three years. And the scene, it takes place uh, after the resurrection. So the previous week, Jesus had gone with his followers into Jerusalem um, for the Jewish festival of Passover. And it was there that he was betrayed by uh, by Judas, arrested, beaten, and publicly executed, declared dead and buried in a tomb. Three days later, he came back. And he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, and and he arranged with her to meet the disciples in Galilee on the side 
of a mountain. So, you can start to imagine the mixed emotions that the disciples would have been feeling at this point as they approached that mountain. Is it him? Could it possibly be, really? I mean, Mary said it was, but, you know, he was definitely dead. This is, this is huge, guys. The excitement that must have been building, and then they see him. They see him, and it says that they fall down in worship. Some of them can't believe their eyes. They're just, it's too much for them to take in. And then Jesus speaks. And he says, all authority has been given to him. All authority. That means he has the ultimate say. In other words, whatever I tell you next, that is what you are to do. Whatever I say, that is how you are to live your life. This isn't a suggestion. This is a command given to you by me who has all authority. And he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. It was a command for the disciples back then. And it's a command for all of us who follow Jesus today. And for the disciples, it was a culmination of three years of teaching and training. All of it had been leading to this moment. Everything I have shown you, everything I have taught you, everything that we have done together, you now go and do to others. And you see, the model of discipleship that they received from Jesus, they were to now take into the world. And that's exactly what they did. It's what they did with these 3,000 new believers in Acts who were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They began to disciple them. So what did that look like? What's the model of discipleship that Jesus had given to his disciples? Well, there's four things I want us to focus on this morning, four things that I think we see in Scripture. Firstly, that it begins with commitment. Secondly, that it grows through intimacy. Thirdly, that it results in change. And fourthly, that it achieves a purpose. Now, I'm sure you'll go much deeper into this in your life group discussions um, in the week. I know we had a really excellent discussion in our life group after last Sunday's teaching on um, fellowship. But hopefully these will give us um, a springboard to start this conversation about discipleship. So let's begin with commitment. I want to take us um, back to the beginning when Jesus first called his disciples. Uh, I'm in Mark now, um, chapter 1, if you'd like to turn with me. Uh, and I'm going to read to you from verse 16 of Mark, chapter 1. It says, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Makes sense. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When they'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. We assume they were fishermen also. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So Mark's Gospel is a, is a brilliant book to read if you're in a hurry, because Mark is not particularly big on detail. Mark likes to uh, get on with the story. 
So in Mark chapter 1 alone, we read about John the Baptist, Jesus' baptism, Jesus' temptation, the calling of the disciples, Jesus casting out evil spirits, healing of the sick, Jesus preaching Galilee, and Jesus curing leprosy. Um, it takes Luke five chapters to get to the same point, and it takes Matthew eight. Um, Mark is someone that likes to get on with it. He's probably one of those people that if you met, he would be really excitable, and he just wanted to tell you the story really, really quickly. And I think that's maybe part of the reason that this story feels um, a little bit odd. You know, Jesus walks past some fishermen and says, come and follow me. And they just go, yeah, all right, see ya. You know, they, literally James and John leave their father standing in the boat holding the nets. Guys, where are you going? We've got a day's fishing ahead of us. And even when we understand that, that culturally it was really quite an honour to be called to follow a famous teacher or rabbi, it still feels um, a little bit rushed, Right? Now, there, there is a bit more to the story. Um, if you read in uh, John chapter 1, you, you find out this wasn't the first time that they'd met. That's helpful. If you read in Luke chapter 5, um, Luke, who likes detail, adds quite a bit more about the conversation that Jesus and Peter um, have at that time. But Mark, in his hurried fashion, includes just enough of the story to make the point that he wants to make. And the point that he wants to make is this. When Simon... Andrew, James, and John hear the call of Jesus to follow him. They leave their old lives behind them. I think if Mark um, had been a film, there'd have been a shot of the five of them walking off into the sunset and the camera would pan back and focus in on the net that was just left lying there on the side of the shore. Symbolising that their old way of life was done. Now they were committed to following Jesus. And this idea that being a disciple is about being committed to Jesus comes up a lot. In fact, Jesus often tests the commitment of those that are following him. On one occasion, he tells them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me will save it. Now, in our society, that idea of taking up your cross, I think, has lost some of its impact. We tend to think of it as a difficult responsibility or an individual burden. We say, oh, that's my, that's my cross to bear, don't we? But actually, what Jesus is talking about is our willingness to follow him even unto death. You see, those being led out to crucifixion were forced to take up their cross and carry it to the place where they would be crucified. It's the equivalent of digging your own grave. And Jesus' point is that becoming a disciple, it's not a half-hearted thing. It's a whole life commitment. It's something that requires all of us. And it's not a a one-time thing either. Jesus talks about taking up our cross daily. That means that every single day we make the decision in our hearts and our minds and in our wills to follow him and lay down our lives. You know, that's why I think when Jesus says make disciples, it's immediately followed by baptize them. Because baptism is symbolic of dying to an old way of life and being raised to a new one. It requires repentance. It requires turning around. And so if I can jump back to Acts for a second, when Peter is faced with these 3,000 people, that's exactly what he does. 
They say, what do we do, brothers? Well, how do we respond to this message? How do we begin this journey with Jesus? And he says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And they were all 3,000 of them. You know, we struggle, don't we, to, to, to get through four or five baptisms on a Sunday morning when we have that service. Imagine trying to get through 3,000 of them. We need some sort of baptism or conveyor belt, I think, to line up with hair dryers afterwards or whatever. But the point is they were baptised because they wanted to leave their old lives behind them. They wanted to leave their nets on the shore and follow Jesus. So discipleship, it always begins with commitment. So perhaps the first question that we need to ask ourselves this morning, the first difficult question we need to ask ourselves is, what's our level of commitment this morning? How committed are we to following Jesus? I'm sure most of us, at one point or another, have said the words, God, take my life. Lord, lead me where you want to go. Father, I lay down my life. I want to live my life for you. I'm sure we've said that. But is that a a historical thing for us? Is that a decision that we made, you know, way back when? Or is that a daily commitment of our hearts? How real is that to us today? And, you know, I think perhaps the best way that we can begin to make sure that we are a living church is to start to challenge ourselves with some of these tough questions. As we meet together on a Sunday or through the week, you know, to actually ask each other, how are you doing in your walk with Jesus? How's it going for you? How's your prayer life been this week? What's God saying to you? How's your Bible reading going at the moment? And, and you know, they're really tough questions to ask and receive because they force us to evaluate our spiritual journey. And that's not always comfortable and it's not always easy but it does keep us on the right path and ensures that we remain disciples of Jesus. So discipleship begins with commitment, but it grows through intimacy. (coughs) You see, when Jesus asked the disciples to follow him, he didn't say, listen, lads, here's how it's going to work. We're going to meet once a week on a Wednesday evening for Bible study and prayer. Uh, We're going to go on a nice retreat once a year, spend some time praying and stuff there as well. And then in the meantime, you've got my phone number. You can send me an email if there's any issues. Uh, Good luck, lads. Off you go. We're going to do this together. That's not the model of discipleship that Jesus gives. It's sometimes the model that we, we, we peddle in the church, but it's not the model that Jesus gives. What Jesus did was he invited them into his life and he invited them into his ministry. They went everywhere together. They hung out together. They ate meals together. They went on road trips. They attended festivals. They went to synagogues. They went to places where they weren't really supposed to go. They had adventures together. And all the time they learnt from him. They watched how he spoke, how he conducted himself with others, how he treated people, how he was with his friends and how he was with his enemies. They learned what sort of things made him happy, what made him sad, what made him angry. They saw him in the midst of grief and heartache. They went with parties to Jesus, with Jesus. Seriously, parties. Like, have you ever thought about what it would be like to party with Jesus? I think sometimes we imagine he'd be in the corner shaking his head at us, don't we? But, you know, this is the guy that turned three barrels of water into wine. I'm betting they had a good time. 
They didn't follow a discipleship program. They followed Jesus in every area of their lives. When times were good, when times were bad. And it was through that constant, constant intimacy with Jesus that the disciples began to grow in maturity. They watched the things that they did. And there was... There are so many good examples of this in the Gospels that I could have shared with you this morning because this is what you find in the Gospels. The disciples walking around with Jesus, stuff happens, Jesus responds and they learn and they grow. Um, but just very quickly, one of my favourites I want to share with you is in Luke 9. And uh, the scene is this, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. It's towards the end of his ministry. He's going to Jerusalem to die. And on the way, he, 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 they want to stop off in this village in Samaria And so he sends the disciples ahead, but the the Samaritans in the village don't want anything to do with him. They say, you ain't staying here, mate, on your bike. All right? This is my translation. Bear with it. Um, And they, you know, they didn't like the Jews, and and so they didn't want Jesus to be there. And and James and John, the two that left their father in the boat, um, they get all irate about it. They're like, well, that's not fair. That's not on. How can these people reject us? And they go in a right strop, and they stomp their feet, and they turn around, and they ask Jesus a question. They go back to him and they say, oh, I wonder what Jesus is going to say about this. And it's this amazing question. I love this. They say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? (coughs) Can you imagine the look on Jesus' face at that comment? I mean, this is an early days. They've been walking with Jesus for a while at this point. You want to do what? You want to call down fire from heaven to literally kill everyone. Really? That's what you want to do? Frustratingly, um, Luke says that Jesus turned and rebuked them. He doesn't say what Jesus said, and I'm so gutted because I would love to know. I would love to know. And they go to another village. You know, come on, Luke, tell us a bit more. But the point is, is this incredible moment that never would have happened in a church service or a Bible study group. Because the best discipleship doesn't happen in here. The best discipleship happens out there. When we're faced with real world challenges. How do we actually respond when people don't like us? How do we actually respond when people reject us, when people bully us, when times are hard, when our neighbours are a pain in the backside, when that woman does that thing or that man said the other thing? How do we actually respond? So I think the next question we need to ask ourselves in terms of discipleship is, do we only expect Jesus to disciple us in church and life group, or do we allow him to disciple us on a Monday morning as well? when things are not going so great. Jesus said in the Great Commission, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age, but just because he's there doesn't mean we're prepared to listen to him. Do we ever ask ourselves, how is Jesus discipling me at work? How is Jesus discipling me at home with my friends? The, the last job I did before um, coming back to work for the church was with social services. And it was honestly the hardest, most heartbreaking job I've ever done. And I, I, only, I could only hack it for a couple of years. Um, there were so many times that I, that I wanted to quit. I wanted to walk away from it all. But what I, I ultimately found was being in that place of difficulty allowed me to be discipled by Jesus in some of the darkest places in our society. 
It gave me the opportunity to pray for babies that had been neglected. It gave me the opportunity to show compassion and kindness to children who were in the worst of situations. And maybe the hardest was, you know, I had to learn how to love people who on paper and according to the world are unlovable. And and it, it was hard. But I grew as a result. God changed my heart in so many ways through that time. And that really is my, coming on to my third point now, because discipleship, it always results in change. It always results in change. Jesus said, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. In other words, show them how to live. Show them what it looks like. He says in John chapter 8, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Because the point of becoming someone's disciple is to learn how to become like them, to understand their way of living. Simon, Andrew, James and John, they left their fishing business in order to learn how to be like Jesus. That was the goal of their discipleship. And it's the goal of our discipleship as well. So how do we become more like Jesus? Well, someone who wrote a lot about this um, in our Bibles was Paul. Most of his letters to the churches give instructions of how they can, as believers, as Christians, begin to live more like Jesus. Um, And he writes this particularly good thing um, in the letter to the Ephesians. And this is what he says. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So we see three steps, three ways in which we can begin to change and become like Jesus. Firstly, we are to put off our old selves. That means that we let go of the desires of the things that we wanted, the things that ruled our hearts before we met Jesus. Things like lust and Envy and pride and greed and anger and revenge, and we choose to, to leave it behind. Now, this part of the process takes time. You know, even Jesus' disciples didn't change overnight. They were still ruled by their old desires, for example, wanting to burn an entire village to the ground. You know, there are times recorded in the Gospels where the disciples argue with each other about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, these are old attitudes that needed to be put to one side. But we make that decision. We make a conscious decision to lay to rest those things that have had a hold on us in the past. Secondly, it says we're made new in the attitude of our mind. That, way, that means that the way we begin to think changes. And that's not done in our own strength. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You know, later in this letter, Paul outlines some of these changes for them. He says, the fruit of the Spirit, that's the the stuff that the Holy Spirit is going to produce in you, is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's forbearance, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, it's gentleness, it's self-control. These are the sorts of things that will begin to fill your mind as you follow Jesus. And thirdly, he says to put on the new self, which means that we start to develop new attitudes, new habits. We start to behave differently, act differently as we are changed. And, you know, we see it with these 3,000 new believers in Acts. Their lives change. We're told a few chapters later that God's grace was so powerfully at work in them 
that all there, that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And so as they walked away from that old way of living, as they were filled with the Holy Spirit, things began to change in their lives, and it had an impact on their, their things, their possessions, their awareness of the needs of others around them. And so I think for our third question, we need to ask ourselves, in what ways is Jesus changing my heart, my attitude, my actions, my feelings towards the world around me? What is God doing in my life right now to make me more like Jesus? Because if we're not seeing the change, then we need to question as to whether or not we're really being discipled. Discipleship always results in change. Again, you know, hard questions. But what if we were to get in the habit of asking each other these sorts of questions, encouraging spiritual development? What is God working on in your life at the moment? What can I pray for you now? What situation have you got in your life that you're finding really difficult and you know that God is going to need to change your heart for it to get better? Tough questions, but worthwhile questions. The final thing I want to say about discipleship this morning is that it always achieves a purpose. So earlier I read to you from Mark chapter 1, where Jesus calls his disciples. He says, come, follow me. But he also tells them the purpose of following him. He says, I will send you out to fish for people. Now, that was a metaphor, just to be clear. They were, they were fishermen. Um, but the point is, it was always the ultimate goal. Jesus wanted his disciples to be able to do the things that he did. He wanted his disciples to be able to make more disciples. And so throughout their time together, he would send them off into villages. He would say, go and share the good news. He would say, go, first of all, to the Jewish population. And then later, when we get to the, the, great, the great Commission, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Fish wherever you like. In fact, fish everywhere. Jesus made disciples who would make disciples, who would make disciples, who would make disciples, who, you get it. And you know, Jesus' method of winning the world to himself was this, it was discipleship. In his time on earth, Jesus actually converted very few people. As I've said already, there was only about 120 believers that were left in Jerusalem at the start of Acts chapter 2. That was it. And Jesus spent most of his time with 12 of them. And even within the 12, he was closest to four. Simon, who later became Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He put most of his time and energy during his three years of ministry into these guys in order that they would go out and make more disciples. And at the end of Acts chapter 2, with these 3,000 people... It says that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And, you know, I was being flippant earlier when I said, imagine if 3,000 people just walked through their door. Um, I don't think that's how it would happen for us, and I don't think it's how it happened for them. What I think happened was that those that were being discipled by the apostles and the other believers began to disciple others. They began to say, hey guys, we found something. You need to come along and see this. You need to be a part of this as well. And in fact, I know it's the case. Later on in Acts, 
chapter 8, we see that the church is driven out of Jerusalem and all the believers are scattered except for the apostles. And it says there that those that were scattered preached the word wherever they went. They made more disciples. They took it with them. And I really don't think it matters what our maturity level is this morning. I don't think it matters how long we've been on the journey or how far we are. You know, actually what you often find is that the most enthusiastic representatives of the Christian faith are those that have just discovered it for themselves. Those who maybe don't have all the answers but have found the joy of knowing the Lord. Those that have discovered that God loves them and just want to shout it from the rooftops. Often it's us that have been sitting here for a long time that are a bit lackluster when it comes to going out and making more disciples. But it's what Jesus intended. It's what he intended for his church. And he said, go, go. That was his instruction to us, and make more disciples. Jesus had 12, didn't he? What if we intentionally decided to disciple three people for a year? If after that year was over, those three began discipling three others, including yourself, you would then have 13 in the group. In year three, that's 40 people. In year four, it's 121, and I couldn't fit any more on the illustration. By year six, it's over 1,000. For one year of investment in three people's lives, it grows very, very quickly. And beside that, there's nothing quite like seeing those that you have invested in, those that you've encouraged going from strength to strength and beginning to share with others the love that you've discovered together. But of course, there's the cost. It requires something from us, and it requires something from those that we're discipling. Firstly, it requires that we remain committed to Jesus, that we daily take up our cross. Secondly, it requires that we make sure that we are journeying with Jesus in every area of our lives, not just at church or on a Sunday. And it has to be that way, so that when we invite others to join us on the journey, they will see the impact that Jesus can have in every area of life. Thirdly, that we actively seek change in our lives and the lives those we're journeying with that we look for maturity, that we encourage growth in each other, that maybe we start to ask ourselves those hard questions. You know, as you meet together in your life groups this week, that we start to really hold each other accountable for our journey. And fourthly, that we become disciples who make disciples. That we intentionally look for those that we can journey with. I wonder if the the band would come and join me back on the stage, because we need to... I think, make some response this morning to this message. And I think the response that we need to make has two fronts. I think it has a spiritual response. And when I say spiritual, I'm talking about what's going on inside of us, in our hearts, in our minds. And I think it needs a practical response as well. When it comes to the spiritual response, maybe it's about us asking ourselves this morning, here and now, some of those more difficult questions. How am I doing? How committed am I to Jesus? I know that I was. (laughs) I know there was that time and that day when I said I was going to go for it. But is that the reality of my life? Or have I let other things creep in? 
other things distract me from what it is that God is doing in my life. And as I said at the start, guys, I really don't want this to be um, about trying to make you feel guilty or make you feel bad or, 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 you know, piling this kind of guilt on. What I want this to be is just an opportunity to stop and ask ourselves that question. And, and to turn around is to simply say, God, I'm going to go for it again. I want to be living for you. I want to be treating this seriously. And we can walk out with our heads held high, knowing that we are going for it with God 100%. The practical side, beyond the spiritual side, is perhaps about asking ourselves, who is it that we are discipling? Who is it that we are journeying with? Who has God placed alongside us that we need to pick up on, that we need to begin to pour our lives into? that we need to create opportunity for. Remember, this isn't about hosting a Bible study or, or, or anything like that. It's about getting alongside people, sharing life with people, invite them out for a meal. Maybe, you know, it's about inviting somebody on an alpha course. Maybe that's the start point for some of us here this morning, that there's someone we know that, that maybe we want to journey with them through alpha and then see where we go in terms of discipleship. Maybe there's people that we know that, that perhaps we're aware of a difficult situation in their life. We know that right now things are really tough for them and that we need to come alongside them and walk with them through that pain and suffering. Just like Jesus walked with his disciples. Who do we know in our lives that we need to make sure that this week, this month, this year, we are coming alongside and discipling? So that's my two challenges for us. Where are we? Where are we in our discipleship with Jesus this morning? And who's around us that we can begin to disciple? I wonder if you'd stand with me.